guessing and skeleton a sport where getting your steering wrong in a hundredth of a second could lead to disaster is just something that uh, led to so much pain. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you today? I'm ready for cake. Yeah, I am too, because it is our anniversary week. Dude, it's, it's been three years. <laughs> oh. Three years. How did that happen? I don't know, but we've had, it's been fun. It's been great. <laughs> and three years, one Olympics. One, one Olympics, one Paralympics. I know. That's a little sad. But then when we hit, will we have two before the next one? No. We'll have one before the next one. We'll be getting ready for the next one. Right. Right. So at five, we'll have three. Okay, that was way too much math. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to be eating cake. <laughs> and not the scary cake top that's been in the freezer. No. Well, we have an anniversary gift for you, and that is the announcement of our book club and movie club selections for 2021. This is very exciting. We really thought about this. We had a whole long conversation about, okay, what haven't, what kinds of things haven't we read? What kinds of things haven't we watched? So we were not being totally selfish in our selections. So our first pick of the year will be a book will be called world class the making of the u.s women's cross-country ski team by peggy shin and then the movie will be the other side of the mountain which i remember seeing in the movie theaters when i was a little kid my goodness this is how long ago this is from it was a one screen movie theater oh <laughs> uh, this tells the story of Ski racing champion Jill Kinmont, who before the 1956 Olympics in Cortina, she had a horrible accident uh, in skiing and she was left a quadriplegic from that. So this will be a, an interesting look at her life. Our second selection of the year will be a we're doing like a double feature in a sense, book and movie Foxcatcher. But the book is Foxcatcher, The True Story of My Brother's Murder, John DuPont's Madness, and the Quest for Olympic Gold by Mark Schultz. And then the movie stars uh, Steve Carell as John DuPont. And it's also got... Um, Mark Ruffalo. Yes, Mark Ruffalo. And uh, Channing Tatum. Oh, that's right. That's right. So not so you know hard on the eyes there. <laughs> Our third book and movie selection of the year. The book will be Seven's Heaven, The Beautiful Chaos of Fiji's Olympic Dream by Ben Ryan, which will have right before the Tokyo Olympics and uh, Fiji will be defending its gold medal. So uh, that's going to be exciting to read that one. I don't know anything about this August movie. It's Murder Ball. Oh, is that going to be on the Power Rugby? Yes. Oh, well, we read a we uh, saw a little bit of that in Rising Phoenix. Yes, yes, exactly. So that'll be fun. Oh, yes. Yes, that's a documentary that came out a few years ago now. It's been it's been a while, but it's supposed to be excellent about uh, wheelchair rugby. And then our final book and movie selection, the book will be Off Balance by Dominique Mociano. So we'll get into women's gymnastics. And then the movie. I have never seen this movie, so I am excited. I, Tanya the story of figure skater Tanya Harding. And that was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. Yes. A couple of years ago. Yes. So I just never got around to seeing it. So actually, I don't think I, other than Other Side of the Mountain, I haven't read or seen any of these. So this will be oh, our that'll first be interesting. impression on everything, yes. which is great. So I'll um. be watching it for the first time with everybody else. I have seen Foxcatcher, which I really enjoyed. So I'm excited to read the book. And then I did see I, Tanya, which is a lot of fun. So, but I am excited to see it again. And in the meantime, a shot at history. Yes. Our current book club selection that we'll be doing soon by uh, Indian air rifle shooter, Abhinav Bindra. 
Yes, and and our movie is Gold, which is about the 1948 Indian field hockey team. So 1948 is the first Olympics that India sent its own Olympic team as opposed to being affiliated with Great Britain. Yeah, so that's going to be really exciting to watch as well. And you can find that on Amazon Prime and YouTube. Or if you're in Australia, some libraries have the DVD. All right. Today we are talking skeleton because it's it's fall now. So we're getting into winter sports season. My heat came on yesterday. <laughs> so I'm ready for winter sports. This week we're talking with Adam Edelman, who's known more commonly as AJ. AJ competed at the Pyeongchang 2018 Olympics as the first skeleton athlete to represent the country of Israel. He finished 28th at those games and has now switched his focus to building a fuller bobsled and skeleton team for Israel with the hopes of having Israeli bobsledders compete at Beijing 2022. He talked with us about how the sport of skeleton works and how one goes about building a sport in a nation that doesn't have a, a winter sports tradition. Take a listen. You picked a sport where experts thought you were going to fail regardless, and you you didn't. Yeah, I, my God, it's it's such a it's such a trip trying to approach sponsors from this perspective. So when I approach sponsors, generally a sponsor is looking at let's say a Michael Phelps or a Simone Biles, and they're looking for these people who have medals hanging around their necks from 15 years of their sport. And, and my pitch is, I'm the dude who tried really goddamn hard i was told that it would never happen i'm i'm the everyday guy and so it's it's hard for people to comprehend but yes my scouting report literally said that i would never be competitive in my sport and was not equipped for it might get down the track and achieve a very small measure of success and that'll be the most of it and so that is that failing often is what i do well let's get into the mechanics of skeleton it is a sport where you hurdle yourself down an icy chute head first on a sled it it is kind of two races where you have the start in which you get yourself on the sled and then the steering yourself to get down without killing yourself so how what what is your sled made of oh that's a great question actually the sled so in a skeleton sled which is the lunch tray version of bobsled you lie you know face down on your stomach on a lunch tray and it extends from your shoulders to your knees that is made of an underbottom, like a, a small little pan that encapsulates an internal structure. The internal structure is not very complex. It basically looks like a big rectangle, and that rectangle torques. So if you apply pressure to the front right side, you know, on your right shoulder, then the back end will kind of lift up a little bit. The underside of it is a carbon fiber pan, we call it, and that's just a covering to make sure that the metal never hits the ice. It's it's kind of like the exterior of your car. It doesn't really have much function except for some aerodynamics. And then steel blades that I, the I assume they are very, very important. I, I assume they detach and you can sharpen them. Absolutely. So we don't really sharpen the steel blades. The, the there is a way to sharpen the steel blades, but generally what you do with the steel blades, which we call them runners. So for now, I'm going to call them runners. So. The runners are composed of 316L stainless steel. They have to come from the same source factory called Kohler in Switzerland. It's very heavily regulated by our sport. And the reason it's heavily regulated by our sport is because that is essentially where the rubber hits the road. All of the innovation that you're going to get in terms of speeding yourself up if you were to illegally manipulate things would come from manipulation of the runners to make them so more hydrophobic and less friction of the water passing through the the grooves. So the runners look like a tube. And so if you were to imagine a rocking chair, a rocking chair, each rocking chair has a different level of bow to the bottom. So some are very steeply angled and some are very shallowly angled. We can change at will how much bow is in our runners. And the advantage of doing so is it gives you a different amount of control or speed based on how much metal touches the ice at any given time. So the flatter your runner structure is, the more metal that's hitting the ice at the same time, the slower you're going to go, but the higher degree of control that you have. So if anyone's out there and listening, if you go and grab a rocking chair and put a piece of tape on the bottom on one specific spot, 
lie down on your stomach on the rocking chair and try to stay perfectly aligned on that one spot where that piece of tape will hit the ground. It's very difficult. And that's really a, a big challenge in skeleton is there's a balance point for which the runner achieves a good balance of both control, cutting the ice, and speed, not cutting the ice. And we can increase or decrease the contact patch, we call it, with the ice. I'm just imagining myself on this rocking chair here <laughs> and it's not going to end well. <laughs> that was a large degree of difficulty that I had at the beginning because my spine has a curvature in it. And if you're not perfectly balanced on your sled, you end up going sideways into corners and skidding. If anyone ever skids a car, it's a lot of fun to skid your car, but it's very slow. If you ever go go-karting, don't skid your go-kart because you go quite slow when you skid your go-kart. So I was skidding into every corner sideways because my back was essentially kinking. Uh, and that was part of the terrible scouting report that I got was I just couldn't balance. So how did you overcome that and figure out where the balance point in your body is? So the, there's a test in figuring out. It's not so much where the balance point in your body is. You want to be able to balance on a specific portion of the runner. So the runner itself is let's say for simplicity purposes, half completely round and half with a blade going down the center of it with two grooves, two channels cut out on each side. And the reason that exists is because if you're cutting through ice, that blade is going to cut through the ice and on both sides, there's going to be little water droplets that pass through those channels. And so you want to balance on the portion of the runner where you have a little bit on the rounded portion in the front and a little bit on the cutting edge in the back. Now, the cutting edge extends far back because under the G-forces, under heavy G-forces, when we go into a corner, we experience five G-forces, which is I'm a 180-pound dude. In a corner, I'll feel like I'm 900 pounds. And so the, the runners flatten against the ice. And so the cutting edge extends all the way to the back of the runner so that you don't skid sideways through a high G-force corner. But you want to align your body and adjust the weights on the inside of the sled to basically put yourself in the position for which you feel comfortable balancing at that perfect point where the runner has that contact. That seems that makes sense. When you start, how do you know what side of the skeleton to run on? <laughs> that is also a great question. You're asking like the perfect questions. It, it, it's somewhat like this. Some people are right-handed dominant and therefore like to hold the sled with their right hand. Some people are left-handed dominant and like to hold the sled with their left hand. So if you're right-handed dominant and like to hold it with your right hand so that you can push it forward, you start on the left side. If you are left-hand dominant and want to push the sled forward while you're running with one hand swinging freely with you know your, your left hand holding it, then you'll run on the right side of the sled so that that left hand comes into contact. Some people do switch it up, though, and it largely depends on your preferences for running. So if you ever go outside and somebody asks you, uh, or if you ever go snowboarding and people ask you whether you're goofy-footed or whether you're normal-footed or which foot goes for first, or if you try to run a race, you know, which foot starts out in front of the other, it's very much personal preference, and it's just set up to how your body naturally reacts. So a lot of people figure that out as they go along early on in the sport of what's more comfortable for them. And then does that matter in which groove you put the sled in, or does the sled need to be in both grooves to be optimal? Good question. So for those listening who are not aware, at the start of a bobsled run, there are two grooves. So we start out with a dead sprint, and in order for the sled not to go sideways all over the ice, because if it didn't have a track to go in, it would go sideways very quickly. The first 40 or 50 meters, there are chiseled out grooves. Now, the two grooves are perfectly spaced so that a bobsled, a normal bobsled, would fit both sides. One side goes in one groove, one side goes in the next. A skeleton is only, let's say, three-quarters width of a bobsled. And so you get a choice as to which runner goes in which groove. There's essentially four different scenarios you can choose from. Right and right, right and left, left runner in right groove, left runner in left groove. A lot of that calculation as to what you're going to do comes down to a couple of things. The most primary thing 
is we observe how people will exit the groove. So certain grooves are not cut perfectly. Actually, most grooves are not cut perfectly, and sometimes there's little imperfections at the end that will throw an athlete out to one side or the other. And so we'll take a careful observation of the people who are going before us to see where they're coming out of the grooves. And we always know where we want to enter, ideally, where we ideally want to enter the next corner. And so if we know that we want to enter the next corner a little bit more to the right side, but the left groove is kicking everyone out to the left. We're going to use that right groove. So it could change from track to track how you do this. Oh, it does. Okay. 100%. So the groove, the groove that you use changes always from track to track, and it can change day to day. It can change run to run. As the sun travels you know, across the sky and continues to melt more ice, and if, if you're in the race and you're number 31, and 30 athletes have almost all gone in the right groove and worn it down, you might elect to go into the left groove. Oh, but you don't know how it's going to act until it spits you out. That's why we carefully watch the few people who are in front of us to see how they're reacting, how they're being naturally spit out. So you said how, how long are the How long are the grooves? The grooves are about 40 to 50 meters, I think. I don't think there's a uniform. In the rule book, there are rules on how on the minimum length and the maximum length of grooves, but I don't think that there's any two grooves that are exactly the same. Right now, when you're you're coming out of there, it may spit you high. It may spit. How long before you're hitting a turn generally after that start? Oh, that that also changes from track to track, and that right. really affects your it really affects your strategy at each track. So if you're at a track like let's say in Whistler, British Columbia, there is a very steep start to the track, and so you go running very steeply and sharply over these uh, along these grooves. And then you have a very long lead into the first corner of which there's a bottleneck. It looks exactly like a wine bottle inverted. And so both of the walls start to converge in exactly like you'd imagine a wine bottle does. And so you have to gauge, based on how people are being spit out of the groove, how much steering you need to do and how quickly you need to do it to avoid hitting that bottleneck. So every track is different. Some are very quick into the first curve. That's like Eagles in Innsbruck, Austria is pretty quick into the first curve. Uh, then there are tracks which give you a decent amount of time to set, settle down. Think Lake Placid uh, in New York is, is on a little bit of a longer side. Each track is different. So since we're talking about tracks, what's your favorite? What kind of track do you like? Ooh, because I was a terrible, terrible starter, a terrible pusher, we call it, my favorite is always going to be a more technical track. And that, for me, means that I love tracks which are harder to drive. So there's two components of the sport, the sprinting start and driving. I am uh, a fan of driving tracks, so I will elect for, let's say, Whistler, British Columbia. It's the fastest track that we go on in the world. I love that track. Lake Placid, New York is also a technically tricky track. Those would probably be my two favorite. Koenigsegg, Germany is uh, is a huge favorite of mine just because of the history of uh, Koenigsegg being. Uh, Hitler's home was in Koenigsegg. I uh, light candles every Hanukkah, which is a Jewish holiday in Koenigsegg. Uh, it's, a, for me, a very personal track. How fast have you gone on Whistler? About 90 miles an hour. Oh, sure. No big deal. Okay. Yeah. Mm. It is no big deal. This sport is a very fast sport. <laughs> So you're talking about steering. You steer with your feet or your legs? So you steer with your head, shoulders, knees, and toes. It sounds ridiculous, but it's true. The sled, as I mentioned, torques the front side and the back side. So if you want to subtly change the direction, just very, very subtly, and you don't want to cause too much friction with the sled, uh, with the runners digging into the ice, you can shift your head a little bit to kind of, if you're ever in a car and you're driving and you look over to the right side, sometimes you'll notice that because it's kind of pulled your shoulder a little forward, you start to drift a little bit to the right. Uh, and so it's that in skeleton. If you want to take a hard steer, you could tap your toes or you could drag your feet on the ground, but it's a very hard and slow steer. Uh, if you want to kind of go medium, you can put your knee into it in a, in a light fashion. If you want to go harder, you can put your knee harder into it. If you want to go pretty hard, you dig both your knee and the opposite shoulder into it to torque to torque the opposite sides. It's uh, There's a lot of different ways to steer a skeleton sled. Where is your, is your chin on the sled? 
Like, where is your, are you just holding your head up? That's also a really good question. The vast majority of athletes will have a cutout around their neck area. And what that means is that when the high G-forces hit you and your head would be forced down to the ground, you're not going to cut your neck on anything. That's why the neck cutout is there. Some athletes have been able to adjust themselves to the point where they can kind of rest a part of their chin on the side of the sled in high G-force corners so as not to drag their face on the ground. I developed a, a, a personally, I developed a system in 2017, 18, the Olympic season that would completely eliminate head impacts to the ice. It was in the news recently, it's come out that there's a whole bunch of issues with CTE and uh, brain damage coming from uh, sliding sports. And a lot of that is the head impacts that skeleton athletes experience. And I developed a system which cut acute head impacts from what I was experiencing sometimes 15 plus per day to zero. Uh, unfortunately, the sport did not look too kindly on it. It was disqualified at the Olympics and multiple follow-up conversations where I really tried hard to get it adopted just did not come to fruition. So is this an actual piece of equipment that's on the sled? No, this was just simply modifying the sled within the rule guidelines to remove the neck cutout, so fully extending the sled, moving yourself back on the sled and the weights forward to offset that balance movement, and then having a slightly extended chin, maybe a centimeter uh, from normal so that it could rest on that filled-in cutout. And so when you'd go through a high-speed corner or a high G-force corner, it would make an impo- your head could not go any further than it being resting on the sled. That makes sense. Because otherwise you're just whapping up. I I have never been more proud in my entire life, including potentially qualifying for the Olympics, than when I noticed that the the system not only worked, but it worked really, really well. Uh, I thought it was, you know, a way to really save, uh, really save a lot of athletes uh, trouble and, you know, down the line. But, you know, the sport didn't seem to be interested in it. Do you think in light of the news that's coming out, they would take another look at that? Or is is it going to be one of those situations where they just keep ignoring it until it's really too late? I'm really not sure. I can't I can't really speak to, you know, their their thoughts on it. it I just know that I tried very hard to get it adopted. It was very painful when it was when it was essentially thrown in the bin, uh, I sent them a, a you know a whole, a whole explanation on how to implement it, and I didn't patent it. I just decided to send them all the instructions, but you know I haven't heard anything from them in in two years. It sounds like so. At some point, like people just don't want what you're what you're sending, uh, and so hopefully you know they they know it's there, so hopefully they'll come back around to it. So learning tracks, I understand you spent a lot of time on YouTube learning how to drive the different tracks just by memor- you know, memorizing how they went uh, through video. How, how was that, and how long did it take you to, to develop that system? Uh, so that system was born out of necessity more than anything. I was a self-funded athlete, could not afford my training, and I had originally been a product manager at Oracle out in California. So the the main backstory of everything is that after Team Israel heard my scouting report, which was terrible, they kind of ghosted me for six plus months. And uh, I had ended up making my way out to California and taking this job uh, at Oracle. And so I had an income, but it certainly wasn't enough to cover the 50K a year it cost to do skeleton and, and absolutely not enough to cover the probably what it would have been 80K with a coach. So the only recourse that I had, especially because I eventually had to quit the job to devote my time to qualifying as well for the games, was watching 10 to 12 hours of YouTube video per day. And that, what that does is it creates neural pathways in your brain. So a lot of baseball players, they'll imagine themselves hitting curveballs hundreds of times a day or more. And we do, you know, athletes do a lot of mental training because the more you imagine doing something, the more you run through it in your mind the easier it becomes to make the connection of just getting that firing and getting that neurological connection. So those neural pathways were essential to me, you know, building those neural pathways were essential to me having success in the sport and learning to drive. Eventually, with all of the hours, you know, I, I figured 10 hours of video per day, six days a week, for four years, I hit 10,000 hours. And that's, that's usually what people associate as being an excellent, you know, person at doing what you're doing. So 
eventually it came to the point where I would be able to observe myself kind of like a drone in the track, replacing myself in the World's Cup footage because I couldn't hold my head up in the corners. I was extremely susceptible to these head hits, to these head impacts, because either due to the curvature in the spine or whatever it might be, I couldn't hold my head up in the high G-force corners. And some athletes have this problem. I think more female athletes have this problem because the musculature in the neck in male athletes is just the muscle mass in the neck is just denser and greater. But, you know, I was constantly dragging my head in what was known as sliding blind. So in any one of the corners, whether it was high G-force or low, for the most part, I really couldn't see. And that presented an immense problem in steering early on because if you don't see and you're not able to really understand whether you're going up or down, you're just guessing for many different times. And guessing and skeleton, a sport where getting your steering wrong in a hundredth of a second could lead to disaster, is just something that uh, led to so much pain. Eventually, though, it kicked in. So I'd say like 2016, after all of the visual repetition and neural pathway building, I really started to get a hang of visualizing myself in the track when I couldn't see a thing and understanding how the pressures were sending my body up and down to a corner. So when we're heading up into a corner, we act very much like a sine wave. So we go up, we go down, we go up, we go down. And the point of steering is that you need to manipulate the pressures to get the sine wave to spit you out at the appropriate time. So some corners are a little too long for an up, down, up, down, right? You're going to start to come back up, right? You'll be eight tenths of the way, 80% through the corner. There's still more corner left, but you already have taken a dip. You can't get out of the corner because there's still more curve. So you're going to start to go back up. But when you're going back up and the curve ends, you're going to barrel roll out. You're going to flip over onto your back, all sorts of bad things. And so the purpose of skeleton, of steering in skeleton, is to manipulate those pressures to the point where you can flatten a curve and extend it I think a lot of people are familiar with the term flattening a curve right now. So we try to flatten our curves or manipulate our curves to extend them to the right point or even sometimes to shorten them to the right point where we can exit the curve exactly how we want to exit. So the bottom line of it, though, is that when you're going up into the curve, you feel more G-force than when you're coming down. And so being able to not see but feel the subtle changes in pressures that brought about you know, going up and going down was immensely helpful, and I credit not being able to see while going through the track with eventual with the eventual success that I did find. So at first, what's the hard stuff that happens at the beginning? What's hard to adapt to besides the sheer terror? What is hard to adapt to besides the terror? There's a lot of things that need to be adapted to in not only sliding sports, but I think sports in general where you're on your own journey. Going through an Olympic journey is very fundamentally selfish unless you make it about someone other than yourself. And there's a lot of athletes who have come across who have met athletes on very personal Olympic journeys. And if you ask someone why they want to go to the Olympics, it's all about, you know, I want to do this. The Olympics is the culmination of a lot of different things and fundamentally very selfish. And there's nothing kind of wrong with that inherently, I think. You know, everyone has their own reasons for going to the games. But I was almost entirely motivated by getting Israel their first qualified berth. And it was extremely important to me to be able to, at some point, overcome the self-doubt, self-loathing at some points of just how bad you know you are, the loneliness and isolation that comes with being in one spot on your own with nobody around you for months at a time, not forming relationships. Like There's a lot of things that you have to kind of move past on a personal level and adapt to it by understanding that you are a representative of both a people and a country. And that, for me, it didn't take very long to adapt to because that's why I went into the sport in the first place. But it still was a mindset that continually reinforces itself and that I would continually have to remind myself of why I was doing what I was doing. So my mantra for myself, my people, and my country is something that is on my Olympic ring. I repeat it before every race run. Um, It's very, very critical to me. And that, I think it took a while to understand, to distill down into a short version of why I was doing what I was doing. And maybe that's what took the most adapting to is finally around 2015, 16, 
I found that for myself, for my people, for my country mantra. And it really changed a lot for me as to how I was able to handle things. So you were raised in Massachusetts. You were not born with Israeli citizenship, as I understand. Correct. So why did you mm-hmm. want to compete for Israel specifically? So that's a great question. And I, I encourage anyone who ever talks to me to ask that very specific question if it's on their mind. I think a lot of people kind of uh, are fearful of asking, you know, why represent a country other than the country that you were specifically born in? And there is something about, so I was, I was raised in a Zionistic home. And I feel that, that Israel is, is a very special place for everyone who resides in Israel. Uh, so not just Jewish people, but Jewish people have a special place where Israel can be called home. So while it may not be the exclusive home, it is still home to, you know, to Jewish people. And so I've desperately wanted to be Israeli uh, for at least since 2006, when I went to visit Israel, the second Lebanon war broke out. And I was really huddled in this hotel. It's called the King Solomon Hotel. I was on a trip to Israel for the summer. And we were huddled for the most part in the King Solomon Hotel in Jerusalem for weeks as rockets fell. And, you know, the the alarms, uh, you know, would go on, off and we'd have to go to the bomb shelters. And, uh, and we, you know, it was really during 2006 that I knew that I'd want to be Israeli. And so I absolutely cannot explain how special the United States is to me. And I'm extremely proud to be an American. But Israel holds a place where I felt that nobody else was going to do this for them. Uh, You know, America has hundreds of people willing to go be skeleton athletes and who can qualify them for the games. Israel didn't have someone who could do that journey. And I felt it to be a critically important mission that Israel be represented at the highest levels of sport by the people who can possibly represent them. And I'm certainly no elite. Yeah, I'm certainly no uh, Michael Phelps. But through hard work and determination in a, in a mission that's greater than oneself, you can really accomplish a lot. And that, for me, was very important to accomplish. That goes part and parcel with a greater mission in life that I perceive that I have, which is when I was in eighth grade, seventh grade, uh, seventh grade about, I was being recruited for these middle schools in hockey because I played hockey when growing up. And I turned down these prep school offers, these scholarships, which is the traditional track you'd take if you wanted to go uh, to like a D1 institution for hockey. And I reasoned that Jews just don't play sports at a high level. You know, what future was that, you know, for me to give up my Jewish education and go to, let's say, a Catholic boarding school to play hockey? And I regretted that decision. For, for a while, I was actually kind of proud of it because I thought, you know, I put my, my academics you know, as a priority, and that's a good thing. But really, I eventually came to see that that was the wrong thought process. And that thought process of limiting yourself because of who you are or because of how you're born is just so antithetical to everything that I stand for now that I felt a need to make sure that that never happens again. And, uh, and so obviously, one person can't change the entire world or everyone's outlook. But to be a stepping stone to showing kids from insular communities, not just the Jewish community, but insular communities in general, that they can achieve high proficiency in sport and that it could be a legitimate outlet for them was really important to me. And I couldn't do that as just a washed up has been hockey goalie for MIT. Like it had to, it had to be as an example of what could be accomplished. And so because of that, I thought, you know, the best way to do this for my community is to wear a big Israeli star and to accomplish what I need to accomplish as this Israeli athlete. And then act as an example of what, you know, of what kids from my background can aspire to be elite sport athletes. Over time, it has really morphed into every insular community, uh, regardless of, you know, regardless of where they come from, everyone should grow up knowing that any avenue is available to them to try. Some of us might be four feet tall and can never make the NBA, but we can still try. And so nobody should be limited by that. And that, that probably more so than, than anything was the primary motivation of representing Israel is that I thought it was the way to make a change in the world that I wanted to make. Kind of along those lines, some of the other skeleton athletes at Pyeongchang, specifically Ghana, had its first skeleton athlete as well with Akwasi Frimprong. Did you find like that kind of common ground in showing 
what could be possible to your your people? I think my journey was very insular uh, in that the interactions that I had with athletes were we always interact because we're at the same we're at many of the same races, but. I didn't have a coach. A quasi had a lot of resources that were not available to me. He had a traveling coach afforded by the United States and uh, cars donated by, you know, dealerships and just generally a, a lot of resources that weren't, you know, available. And so when I was done at the track, I really had to pack up, get out of there, self-evaluate and go home and, and do my thing. And so I didn't really get the chance to interact so much and find that common ground that I would have loved to have found with a lot more athletes and bond over that. I have a feeling that on this bobsled journey that we'll be on, that will be an option. But no, unfortunately, we didn't really find that common ground because we didn't interact too much. How did you, or how do you balance religion with sport? Because you're modern Orthodox, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Mm -hmm. so how did you balance religion and sport, especially with competitions? Did that interfere with with your religious practices? So it really didn't. Uh, the good thing about Skeleton is that it was held a lot. Almost all of our competitions were held Thursday, Friday. At the the Olympics, my events were held on Thursday and Friday. The difficulty that will show up come Beijing 22 is that it is a Saturday-Sunday competition. And I guess the if it is a Saturday-Sunday competition, if it's held in the evening after sundown, it presents no difficulty. And so this would be an opportunity to kind of wait and see how that's going to play out in terms of timing. But, you know, it's one of those things where you cross that bridge when you get to it. I don't train on, on, on Shabbos. We call it Sabbath. And even down in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's, it's a good day to have a rest day, especially because it's so exhausting to be um, creating a program. But the reality of it is that eventually most Orthodox athletes do face this question. And some of them approach it from the standpoint of, you know, competition on Sabbath is just something that they don't do. There's a, a marathoner named BD Deutsch who stands an excellent chance at Tokyo qualification in the marathon. And she is going to face a, 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 a difficult challenge here in that she's indicated that she won't compete on the Sabbath if it's held on the Sabbath. And it's currently slated to be Saturday. Now, the reasonable accommodation that the Olympics can make is just shifting it to the evening time. And they actually explored doing so out of concern for athlete safety because the marathon was set to be run on the streets of Tokyo in this insane heat. And so they explored, I think, at one point holding this at night. I don't know what they're going to do because it was pushed off to 2021, but there are very reasonable and easy accommodations that the Olympics can make, such as pushing it to, you know, just holding it after sundown rather than in the morning. Let's move on to bobsled and developing the program. Once you retired, the then the impetus is growing the sport in your country, yes? Yes. So I transitioned to a role of head of development for Bobsled Skeleton Israel. So the Israel Bobsled and Skeleton Federation is our licensing body. And I transitioned to the role of head of development to uh, bring on uh, a bobsled team, a, a new bobsledder, um, a female skeleton athlete, a new male skeleton athlete as well. So now we have three permanent skeleton athletes, uh, and uh, another bobsledder in addition to me now. I had seen my role as advancing uh, the cause of Israeli sport, and I had felt at a certain point, because of a combination of how the helmet thing was dealt with at the Olympics and subsequently thereafter, uh, and a a very blatantly anti-Semitic remark that was said to me by a jury member at the Olympics, I had just reached the point where I just could not handle being in the sport anymore. It was very painful, and I had felt that my mission was to move on and and be a guiding, you know, a guide to future athletes and and start on my goal of of advancing sport for insular communities. However, um, after the games, uh, a couple of months after the games, I was traveling through an airport in Busan, which is you know, Busan Airport is also in Seoul, but I was given a note by somebody who had. They obviously didn't recognize my face, but they recognized the jacket that I was wearing. And my story of having quit uh, my job at Oracle and gone broke and self-coaching to the Olympics had, I guess, been told on the broadcast in Korea. And so they put two and two together, and they wrote me a, a sticky note, which they left on my luggage, saying that, you know, we saw your game, and it was, you know, inspiring, and we want to see you at Beijing 2022. And at that point, the feelings of what had happened in Pyeongchang were so raw that I, you know, I kind of 
laughed and I was like, hell no, am I ever coming back to this? But I put the note in the back of my phone because it was proof positive that what I so desperately had wanted to achieve had been in some level achieved, which is acting as an ambassador of your people and your country in a way that touched someone. And so this person had, they had no idea who I was. And they just saw me a couple months after the games and had put together, you know, oh, here's Israel. And they had probably never met an Israeli before. Uh, and so, you know, it was just something so special to me that it proved that, like, it had an effect, that it had had an impact, that I kept it in my phone for two years. And in April of 2020, so this year, this, this April, April 2nd, to be exact, I took a look at that note and I thought, you know, I was kind of chased out of the sport because of external forces. You know, someone made an anti-Semitic comment. Uh, the sport didn't seem to be caring about the health and safety that I'd wanted them to care about. So I don't want to be chased out. I really want to complete a mission that has an even greater impact. And bobsled is the premier winter Olympic sport. You know, everyone knows of the Jamaican bobsled team. Everybody knows of bobsled. And so once again, it was kind of one of those things where it was like, well, you're probably the only one who could do this properly. So go ahead and go out and do it. And uh, for the past five months, uh, we started an operation called Operation Metal 26. The goal of Operation Metal 26 is to capture Israel's first Winter Olympic medal at the 2026 Games. It's a massive, monumental effort because it has to be privately funded. Israel does not fund you in any way, shape, or form until you win medals in European championships and things like that. And obviously, we have not done that. Uh, and so it requires a massive seven-figure privately funded effort. And over the past five months, I've been setting up all the infrastructure I moved down to Raleigh to train and set up all the infrastructure, finding underwriters for insurance policies for a bobsled team, which is surprisingly difficult. But everything that you would need for a 10 to 15 athlete, seven-figure, six-year outlook program has been effectively put into place and is pretty much good to go, except for we need additional sponsors. So the um, you know we've identified that the program is even more terrific because we didn't set out seeking to find any particular demographic of, of person, just that they need to love representing Israel. But by chance, the top three recruits are Israeli Arab Druze. Druze are an ethnic and religious minority. And so it's just such a special thing to me that it reaches so far into Israeli society that the team is, is truly representative of just so much of what Israel has to offer. So we have an Israeli, Arab, Jewish, LGBTQ bobsled team lined up, and uh, it's just very special to me. Uh, and, it, and so the, the next few weeks are entirely focused on getting that team over in training shape, getting them you know, their visas, and finding and securing more sponsors. Did you get a lot of cool runnings references as you were training? Oh, God, all the time. It's impossible to get away from, and in one sense, it's great because it means people know the sport and are connected to it. And in another sense, it's very difficult because you're always being compared to someone else, and that someone else is from 32 years ago. And so it's, um, you know, I like to joke. So everyone jokes, you know, oh my god, it's like cool runnings, and I say, no, 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 it's called shul runnings. Uh, shul is is the is the Yiddish word for synagogue. And so it's very nice that the recognition is there, but I cannot even like it's every single time that there's any Facebook post about it. The first thing is a gif of, of the cool running study. How long did it take you to become, have people treat you more seriously on the track? Hmm, that's a really good question. Because um, if, if you got a lot of cool running stuff, then you know when when can you when do you when do you get to shed that and be yourself well from an athletic standpoint i think athletes really started to notice things come towards the olympic season when i was a bit of an outside contender yet still possible contender my chances from the get-go from that scouting report were even i pegged them in my initial emails to family and friends as less than one percent far less than one percent and as you know, as 2016 came to a close, I had pegged it at something like 5%. And so even I didn't take myself seriously as a contender for 2018. I'd always imagined that it was going to be for 2022. But things just started to come more into focus. There was a point where after my first race uh, in Park City, Utah, I finished 18 point something seconds 
Uh, I'll have to like check the Wikipedia, but I, I finished like 18 plus seconds behind the victor, John Farrow, a great Australian skeleton athlete. And somebody in the start house was telling his friends that most athletes quit within two years. And, uh, and I said, you see that guy over there who finished 18 seconds behind, he'll be gone within two years. And I heard that, and it was just like, nobody tells me I can't do something. Only I tell myself I can't do something, which I tell myself all the time. But, you know, that's just fuel for a fire. And at that point, it really came, you know, to me, I don't need the respect of other, I don't need other athletes to respect my proficiency, right? Like respecting someone's proficiency, I want respect as a person. As, you know, proficiency in the sport, I'll let results speak for themselves. But uh, it really came into sharp focus for me when I, when I, after I heard that, it was this thing where it was just like, hell no, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this happen at all costs. And that's really what ended up uh, happening. So when did athletes start to take me seriously? I have no idea. Uh, when did I start to take myself seriously? Probably around the 2017 season, I thought that I really needed to make a, a, a sincere run at 2018. That's when I uh, quit my job at Oracle and uh, really went really went full on. I mean, I was always full on, but you know, removing the safety net of going back to a job was was really really big. So speaking of no safety net, I know we're running out of time, but I do I always ask, what's your worst crash? Ooh. Segolda of 20, uh, so in 2016, I officially burned out. And people can find like a, a text talk on this. It's called, I, I failed, I quit, I made the Olympics. I burned out in 2016 at a track called Segolda, which is about an hour plus train ride from Riga, Latvia. And uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's dark and wet and cold and depressing. And my family had been chased out of Riga you know, a century before or whatever it was because of um, anti-Semitism. I, I just didn't want to be there. And it was two years to the day of receiving the scouting report. So March 14th of 2016. So it was my 25th birthday. And uh, for the month prior, I'd just been training at this track. And Segolda is the most punishing track, in my opinion, in the world. And I, I still sucked at that point. It was just absolutely awful. So I had been tearing my ankle to shreds by continually ripping it open. And I had broken almost all the ribs on the left side of my body. It was really, really, um, it wasn't the single crash, but the damage over that month led to permanent discoloration of my left ankle, uh, which is nice because I've never, I can't really get a, a tattoo because of you know, religious beliefs. Uh, but that's as close to as, uh, a tattoo as I'll get is just, I have this permanent purple discoloration on my ankle from ripping it open literally every time over the course of a month. So it was like 60 times just ripping off more more and more skin. So your career as a foot model is just out the door? Out the window, unless they're looking for purple ankled uh, foot models. <laughs> so once you got into the Olympics, what was the reaction from people back in Israel when they saw you made it and came home and you were officially the first skeleton athlete? Most people knew me for my helmet. So kasda is the word in Hebrew for helmet. And so they were like, ah, oh, you're the guy with the kasda because the helmet became somewhat known. There were two incidents with the helmet. The first incident was that the helmet that I had preferred to wear, the International Olympic Committee made me paint over it uh, because it had an image of Samson. And they, they said that it was too religious and therefore ran afoul of IOC Rule 50. Uh, which bans religious propaganda. Uh, it's a bit of a weird thing to be told to paint over an image of Samson uh, when the Korean hockey goalie had like a, a verse from Isaiah written across her mouth. Uh, but they knew, like it had become known in Israel that I had to paint my helmet entirely in blue with spray paint. Like I was, I had to go out to, I had to to find a way to find in the middle of the Olympic Games a can of spray paint somewhere to spray paint my helmet in a non-aerated, like, mini janitorial closet uh, in our village and sand it down so that it wouldn't be unaerodynamic. So people knew of that part of the helmet. Uh, the second one was the disqualification of that helmet fully, eventually, from, you know, because it, it had the, the chin that was a centimeter longer, well within the rules, but still they, the, the jury didn't like it. And so people knew of the helmet and they thought it was crazy. And they're like, oh, my God, you're the crazy guy. But that's the extent. I think that's the extent of things. They're like, oh, you're the crazy guy with the helmet. Uh, so 
it's not uh, it's not a huge deal to be an Olympian in Israel unless you've won a medal. And so that's kind of really what I'm hoping for is even though I won't be part of the medal team in 2026, I'm for sure retired after 2022. Uh, the likely medal contenders in 2026 will be our female bobsled teams, which we're bringing on. But I recognize that Israel pays attention when people win medals because we are not known for our sporting success. The country goes bonanza when we win medals. And so I'm just hoping that I could be one small stepping stone in Israel eventually getting their first winter medal. And it will go crazy and nobody will know who I am, which is totally fine. It's what I actually prefer. But I'm very excited at the prospect of people knowing who that women's team will be because they will eventually capture a medal. I'm looking at the picture of the helmet, and this thing is amazing. Oh, the Samson one? Oh, you saw yeah. the picture of the Samson helmet. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the problem is that the officials were just jealous of, of Samson's physique. <laughs> Samson breaking pillars was um, it was supposed to represent a couple of things for me. One, one was which, you know, a small country breaking barriers and and making itself known in, in a sport typically dominated by, you know, larger, you know, larger nations. And, and for me, as a personal journey, breaking the, the pillars of, of the barrier of being told, you know, you suck. So, you know, that for me was it, the symbolism was very important. Samson is, is a very important figure for me just because of what it represents. But uh, yeah, it, unfortunately during the games, it had to be uh uh, spray painted over. So if you ever find a picture of me competing in the games, you'll notice that the helmet is suddenly all blue. Yes. And it has that spray painted in the basement look to it. It really does. So it's funny. Yeah, it's it like, does. Yeah, you, I, can, you can totally you can see, see it. Yeah, you can see little flecks of orange around the, <laughs> around the visor. Yeah. Well, and we are really looking forward to seeing what you and the team do in the future. We'll be following you. Thank you so much, AJ. You can follow AJ in the Israeli bobsled team at AJ Edelman and at Israel Bobsled. And their website is bobteamisrael.com. I want a Samson helmet. <laughs> that helmet that is around. really, really cool. It was fabulous. And I felt bad that he had to spray paint over it. I was like, that hurts my artistic soul. I know. He got rule 50 That is not okay. The journey of not knowing the sport, trying the sport, being told you're not going to do well. And he got to the Olympics. He wasn't last. Learned how to do it. And now, you know, I think it's pretty awesome that he wants to bring up another country in the sport and have more participation. Because that's what it's all about. Yeah. So in the past 20 years, the IOC has really been pushing for new countries and countries who haven't competed in certain sports before and developing new programs. So this is a great example of a country that does not have a winter sports tradition other than, say, in figure skating. Right. But most of those figure skaters are not native Israelis. Right. So now that AJ's building up a program and getting more people within the country who are involved, I think that's going to be really great for them and give them something to rally around. Yes. The power of sport. I know. I want more Samson. Uh, Maybe they can put a Samson right on the head of the bobsled. That would be scary (gasps) because it would be really big. That would be really cool if they could do that. We're going to lobby for that. There you go. No Rule 50 can stop us. (laughs) All right, before we take a trip to Shuklistan, we have an announcement. Our newsletter is back. Very exciting. Our anniversary. Exactly. So subscribe at flamealivepod.com. You'll get a weekly behind the scenes look at what goes on in the show. Because we edit a lot. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Gee, sometimes we go off on tangents. <laughs> Our regular <laughs> listeners would never believe that. <laughs> But it's a lot of fun, and we'd love you to join us. I, I was going to say, now the only country you can travel to right now. <laughs> Welcome to Shukflistan. Our karate athlete, Tom Scott, was profiled by the World Karate Federation on video. I saw it on Twitter, so we'll uh, put a link to that in the show notes. Marnie McBean will be speaking at Coach New Brunswick's 5th Annual Beyond Coaching Conference on September 27th. Her topic will be the importance of the athlete-coach bond 
And this year the conference is virtual, so maybe you can sneak in. Because I would love to be bonded to Marnie McBean and have her be my coach. <laughs> I'm not so sure she'd want the same bond back. <laughs> I don't think she would. I think she's very happy when our interview ended. But speaking of cake, she's a great baker. Yeah. She and Deanna Price. Get on those anniversary cakes, ladies. Uh, sport climber Josh Levin has joined Classroom Champs, the mentoring program here in the U.S., and he's gearing up to mentor some school children this year, and they are very excited to have him as their mentors. Lucky kids. And then finally, Keegan Randall was interviewed by theprokit.com about retiring from sport, giving advice on how that works. And we've been talking a lot about that, the transition, and she seems to have made that transition pretty seamlessly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's uh, she has kids, so that I think helps, and and her health was a big issue to focus on for a while. So that'll help transition anybody out. A little cancer won't. Yeah, it kind of takes your focus off things for a while. Yeah, so uh, that that's a very interesting article as well. So we'll have that in the show notes. Uh, let's see what's happening over at Tokyo. So the planning committee has been not really releasing. They've sort of been dribbling out drafts of proposals for how they're going to handle COVID-19 next year. And these athletes are going to get tested, tested, and tested again. Wow. So, so far, the plans involve you test before you leave your home country, you test when you get to the airport, you test when you get to the Olympic Village or wherever you're going to be staying, and you test when you arrive at the venue. Wow. There is a proposal that athletes will not be allowed on public transportation, but there's a lot of controversy around that because Tokyo is such a dense city and to get everybody in private official cars would be almost impossible. Yeah, that, that'll be interesting because they usually have like bus transportation and things for athletes. I wonder how they're going to manage that for different, different sports. Exactly. And then the question right now that seems to be the big uh, issue is, how much are athletes going to be quarantined within the Olympic Village? Are they going to be allowed out into the greater Tokyo community? Which, you know, in so many of the athletes that we've spoken to has been an important part of their Olympic experience. Mm -hmm. So that may be really changed this time. And guess which country is going to be the biggest problem? Uh, who? Can you believe the United States? What, us? Problems? No. So the biggest problem right now is obviously the United States has the greatest number of COVID cases. It also has the largest contingent planning to go to Tokyo 2020. So this could get very interesting for Team USA. Yes, there was a big article in the Wall Street Journal about that this week, talking about, like, what do you do? Because our country does not seem to have a handle on the coronavirus. And as we move into fall and cooler weather, which drives people inside, and that may spread the virus more, how how will that affect the team's chances of being allowed to participate? So we will keep an eye on that. So, and all these draft notes came from Reuters and U.S. News. Okay, excellent. Well, let's check in with Beijing 2022. It is 500 days to go. I saw that on Instagram today and I panicked, which is, I, it's like every time they give me a deadline, I panic and I'm like, 500 days, you've got some time. You're right. When they start doing that big, big countdown, the, the milestone countdowns, and they're in the triple digits, whoa. Get a little nervous there. Right. But Beijing has been moving right along, even with Corona. Right. They have completed pretty much all of the buildings, all of the ice rinks set to be used at the games will be ready for ice production by the end of the year. They're working on green initiatives. So oh, they're, they're chugging right along. I know. And in the last IOC meeting, Thomas Bach expressed a very positive attitude toward how Beijing has been progressing. So it's not just the Chinese officials saying this. Mm -hmm. oversight is coming in and say no even though they had to shut down a lot of construction and and meetings and things because of corona they've managed to uh catch back up 
Yes. Before we leave today, we'd like to ask for your support. I, you know, I did the math on this. And if you were a Patreon patron at the lowest level, which is a dollar a month, every show is worth like a quarter. So if this show is worth a quarter, I would hope we're worth a quarter. So if this show is worth a quarter to you, please become a Patreon patron. You can donate at patreon.com slash flame alive pod. Or if you don't want to have an ongoing donation, you can also donate at PayPal. We will have a link to both in our show notes. Please support the show. It helps defray our costs and uh, our time for putting this all together. That will wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you think about AJ and his quest for an Israeli bobsled team. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we'll be back with more stories from the Olympics and Paralympics as we go out to music by Archdale. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive.